welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. For many children, the longest night of the year won't come at the winter solstice, but a couple nights later, on Christmas Eve. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series, Good News of Great Joy, with this sermon entitled, The Presentation of the Messiah, which covers Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 40. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Our scripture today is from Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. Let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. Father, you give us the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Come down, we pray, and feed your people who are gathered and who hunger and thirst for your word. Amen and amen. So we're in the third week of Advent, and as we're kind of in the middle of the Advent season, it's probably good for us to pause and consider the question, what is Advent? What does that word even mean? And quite simply, it comes from the Latin for, uh, for the word meaning coming, or to come, to, uh, to expect, to wait on one who is coming. I want to read to you a bit of a lengthy quote here at the top uh, that I think sets the table for us really well for understanding what it is that we're being invited to, invited into in the Advent season. This is from Timothy Paul Jones, who wrote an article called Why Celebrate Advent for the Gospel Coalition a few years ago. He says this, 
in a religious milieu that has fixated on Jesus, on using Jesus to provide seekers with their most convenient lives here and now, Advent is a particularly awkward intrusion. Advent links our hearts with those of ancient prophets who pined for a long-promised Messiah but passed long before his arrival. In the process, Advent reminds us that we too are waiting. Even on this side of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, there is brokenness in our world no cart full of Black Friday bargains can fix. There is hunger in our souls no plate full of pumpkin custard can fill. There is twistedness in our hearts no terrestrial hand can touch. The whole creation, the Apostle Paul declared, has been groaning together for redemption. In Advent, Christians embrace the groaning, recognizing it not as hopeless whimpering over the paucity of the present moment, but as expectant yearning for the divine banquet Jesus is preparing for us. In Advent, the church admits, as poet R.S. Thomas puts it, that the meaning is in the waiting. And what we await is a final advent yet to come. Just as the ancient Israelites awaited the coming of the Messiah in flesh, we await the coming of the Messiah in glory. Advent is a proclamation of the sufficiency of Christ through the discipline of waiting. The sufficiency of Christ through the discipline of waiting. Waiting is hard. Waiting is really hard. But it's interesting that so much of life is waiting, right? Just even traveling across the sea and, and uh, to Egypt recently, I, I, I'm just reminded of how even that is a microcosm of how life is so much waiting. You know, you, you, you go to the airport and you wait. You wait for your plane to board, and then once you're boarding, there's a process there, and you wait for the plane to taxi, and then as you taxi, you wait for the plane to take off, but then even once in your, you're in the air, you wait for hours, depending on how long your flight is, to get to where you're going, and please understand, I, it's not lost on me that we are incredibly spoiled, that we can fly across the world in a matter of hours when it used to take, you know, six to eight months, and you probably might die on the way. So we have it well. We, we, things are good. But there's waiting, right? And then you get to where you're going, and there's more waiting. You have to wait to deplane, and then you have to wait to, uh, for whoever picking you up, whether it be an Uber or a taxi or a shuttle. And then once you get in there, you're waiting as you drive to where you're going. There's just a lot of waiting with travel. And that's a little bit of a picture of life as a whole. So much of life is waiting. And there's good waiting. Uh, there's, there's waiting of the good variety. You know, things like some of you, you... you you're pregnant and you're waiting on that due date. Or, or you're engaged and, and you're waiting on that wedding date. Uh, or, or you're 15 and you're waiting so desperately to turn 16 to get that driver's license so you can drive that car by yourself. There's eager, hope-filled, excited, joy-driven wait. And, and we go, That's, I can deal with that. That's good waiting. But there's heavy waiting. There's hard, difficult, painful, anxiety-induced, stress-filled waiting. For some, it's, it's the waiting to get pregnant. 
It's the waiting to get engaged. It's the waiting to hear those long, long awaited words of in remission or cured. It's, it's the waiting of, of, oh God, would you please, would you please let the, the waves of grief just stop crashing and crashing and crashing on the shores of my heart. I'm waiting for it to stop. Some are waiting for healing. Some are, are waiting for just something better. Waiting is hard. Advent is an invitation into waiting. We identify with those of old, of the ancient times where they had been promised by God that there is one coming. There's one coming and when he comes, things will be different and the rescue of God's people will happen and the restoration of God's people will happen and the, uh, the, the rejoicing of God's people will occur because of their deliverance. Now, they misunderstood how he would come, and they, they misunderstood why he would come. They, they thought he would come for, uh, in a way that would d deliver for them uh, military and political and government freedom to have their kingdom back, literally. They missed the, the part, the most essential part, that he would come, and he would come in the flesh, not to deal with those things just yet. That'll be part of his second coming. But his first coming was to deal with the things of most importance, which is our own souls, our hearts, our sin problem. To deal with the penalty of sin itself, which is death, to come and to say that what you need more than any of those other things, more than, more than deliverance from the Romans or any others that may oppress you, you need deliverance from the evil one and sin itself that oppresses you, not just now in this life, but for all of eternity. They, they awaited, they, they kept waiting and kept waiting, and they, and they knew the promise of God that there's one coming who will crush the head of the serpent, but they would wait and then they would die without seeing it happen, and generation after generation after generation would wait for him to come. And then he came, and he did, he, he did exactly what the prophecy said that he would do, that he would be born a humble king, an unassuming king. He would be one who would come in all the ways that we wouldn't expect and, and that he would come, again, not to deliver us from the things that we think we need to be delivered from, but from the very thing that we need most, which is deliverance from darkness, from sin, from death. And so he lived the perfect life. And he went to the cross sacrificially on our behalf to be the only perfect lamb for the sacrifice for the sins of the world. And then he did the very thing that we can't imagine was possible, which is he defeated death now and forevermore. And he grants to us through his place for us, his substitutionary atonement as we call it, he grants to us the very same power over sin and death in this life and in the life to come. It's called the good news of great joy. The gospel. But he's still doing a work. He's finished the work. He cried out on the cross, it is finished, and he didn't lie. It is finished. The battle has been won. The, the head of the serpent has been crushed. He has no power over those who believe in the one true Messiah, King Jesus. But God is still doing a work. All these other things that we feel, 
the heaviness of the physical realities of this life, the brokenness of our bodies and our minds and our emotions and our wills, the ways in which sin doesn't have power over us anymore, but certainly is still very present in the world. He's still doing a restoring work in all those arenas that will be finished on the day of completion when he comes again. So where do we find ourselves? Not too different from those ancient people of old who were waiting on his first coming, we're now waiting on his second coming when he will make all things new and all sad things will come untrue. So we have a key question for this morning, not just this morning, but for, for our lives. Here's the question. Who will you be as you wait in this life? Waiting is common to all of us. Yes, in the macro sense that we're waiting on Jesus to come again and make all things new. But in the micro sense of as, as he has you waiting in the little arenas of life that he has us in, as we're waiting on that test result, as we're waiting on that life partner, whether he has one for us or not, as we're waiting on our children to believe upon Jesus, oh God, may they do it. As we're waiting on this and on this and on this, who will we be as we wait. In this passage that we had read for us, we're introduced to two people who had spent their whole lives waiting on the promise of the Christ. The first one is Simeon. Let's look at him for a moment. We read about him in verses 25 through 32. What do we know about him? Not, not much, just what this passage tells us. But this passage tells us, even though it's not a whole lot in terms of ink spilled, tells us a lot about who Simeon was. Three things in particular that we read right here in verse 25. First, it tells us that he was righteous and devout. Righteous and devout. I don't know about you, but if, if, if that is all anyone ever said of me, praise God. Righteous and devout. Now, Simeon's a sinner. He's not perfect. He's not the Savior. He's not perfectly righteous. He's not perfectly devout. But when you look at the landscape of his life from beginning to end, Luke was able to say, because of his reputation, he was able to say, this man pursued righteousness. He was righteous. He, he pursued the things that are right according to God. And he was devout. He was devoted to the things of God to the glory of God, to the kingdom of God. Did he do any of that perfectly? By no means, but that's what he was about. I mean, I mean, that in and of itself, that one sentence is a headstone that I would just love to have on my headstone, right? Any of us, if we know Jesus, if we know the Lord, we'd say, if, if on that day that my, my body is in the grave and my spirit is with the Lord, if, if you were able to put on there, Jeff Norris, he was righteous and devout, that would be more than I ever deserved because I would know deep down there was so much brokenness in me, but that's what I longed for, pursuing the righteousness of God devoted to his kingdom. This is Simeon, the man of God. But it continues. It says that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now don't think consolation like consolation prize, like plan B. 
I'm waiting, I'm waiting for just kind of the, the, the secondary reward for Israel. Don't think that. Consolation, as it's translated, is, is meaning comfort. It's meaning solace. So another way that you could read this is to say that his life as a righteous and devoted man was devoted to waiting for the comforter to come. The, the long-awaited Messiah to come and comfort his people. It's, it's coming from this idea that Isaiah gave us. As Isaiah was writing, comfort your people, O God. O comfort them, comfort, comfort your people. And he's saying there is one coming who will do just that, and I'm waiting on him. Doesn't mean that I'm gonna twiddle my thumbs and do nothing in this life. It just means that in everything that I do in this life, my greatest hope is that he's coming. My greatest hope is that things will not always be this way. There's one coming who will make it different. He will comfort in every way. He's the Messiah. Then it says one more thing. Well, let me read, actually, before we move on to that one, I want to read to you this quote because I think it's important. One of my favorite uh, biblical commentators is a guy named William Hendricks, and I quote him a lot. He says this about the context in which he was waiting on the comforter to come. He says, to be sure, conditions were bad, very bad, in Israel at the time of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Think of loss of political independence, cruel King Herod, externalization of religion, legalistic scribes and Pharisees and their many followers, worldly-minded Sadducees, the silence of the voice of prophecy. But in the midst of all this darkness and degradation and despair, there were men who were hopefully looking forward to and earnestly expecting the consolation of Israel. There were such men and women too. I wanted to read this to you because I think there's a lot of parallels even today. We hear a lot now, we fret a lot now that things are worse than they've ever been. And we might even use some of those same words that Hendrickson used to say that in a, in a day that feels like it's a day of degradation, of great darkness and despair, we can be tempted to believe that there aren't simians in the world. We can believe that there aren't men and women who despite what's going on around us, and certainly it's not ideal, that we're not fretting and wringing our hands, so to speak, because we know that our hope is ultimately in the one who is sovereignly reigning over it all and who will come to make all things new. We know that churches throughout, not just the United States, but throughout the world are filled with simians. Male and female who are saying, despite what's going on out there, and yes, I'm concerned about it, and yes, I'm praying about it, but I'm not fretting about it because Jesus is king and he's coming again. And he's sovereignly reigning just as much today as when things were circumstantially as great as they've ever been in the world. When was that, by the way? We say, oh God, raise up more Simeons. Raise up more Simeons who would be devout and righteous, who would be eagerly awaiting the consolation of his people, the coming again of Jesus to make all things new. But it says one more thing about Simeon. A third thing that it says, it says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was fully given fully surrendered to say, oh, Holy Spirit, do with me as you will. Lead me, guide me, direct me, empower me. 
Speak to me. My life is yours. Fully surrendered. The posture of Simeon's heart was one where he allowed the Holy Spirit in such a way to be upon him. Now, this is pre-Pentecost, where now, after Pentecost, we understand that all believers, every person who believes upon Jesus has the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us, which is profoundly amazing. We have the opportunity to surrender to that Holy Spirit every single day and say, oh, you lead, you guide, you direct, you empower, you take me, and you do with me as you please according to your plan and your glory. The Holy Spirit, this passage tells us, had revealed to Simeon that he would not die physically, a physical death, before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What a promise, what an honor, what a privilege. And we don't know for sure, but I think we can safely assume, based on the language that Simeon's about to use in this passage recording, recorded for us, we can, I think we can safely assume that Simeon was old. He, in other words, at some point in his life prior, we don't know when, he had received a promise through the Holy Spirit that he would not die before seeing physically with his own eyes the promised Christ, the Messiah, and he had waited his whole life for it. From whenever that promise was given until now of old age, he had waited. And this was the kind of man he was as he waited. Righteous and devout. Patiently waiting, full of the Spirit. Watch what Simeon does. How do we know he was probably old? Well, he says that he does this. It says, verse 27, and he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents, Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of law, he took up in his arms and blessed God. I just don't want you to lose that image real quick of what's happening here. The irony, the beautiful irony of what's happening. You have Simeon, yes, a godly man, but a sinner nonetheless, who is scooping up the Savior of the world in his arms and holding him. Don't miss it. He's holding the one who will ultimately hold him. And it says that, and that he blessed God. He's, he's blessing the one who will ultimately bless him. And what does he say? And, and let, me, let me actually say that differently. What does he sing? Because you'll notice in your Bible that these words from, from Simeon here are indented to mean uh, poetic language, but even probably most likely poetic, poetic hymn language. He may very well have sung this blessing and his heart is rejoicing. And what does he say? He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. As I've waited upon you to, for this very moment, now in my old age, I can say now, yes, you've been faithful to that very promise that you gave me. And what does he say? He says, my eyes, verse 30, have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of who? All peoples. Salvation, this, this baby that I'm holding, this, this Savior is the Savior of the world, of all people, Jew and Gentile alike. And he, he, he expounds on that by saying in the next verse, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. It's for all people. He's for all people. Simeon is ecstatic. His heart is leaping with joy. 
is he holds the one who he knows will hold him for all of eternity. But as we continue, if we jump ahead a little bit in the text, we're introduced to a second person. Her name's Anna. Verses 36 through 38, what do we know about her? Don't freak out when I tell you that there's eight things that we know about her. I'm going to hit them really quick. Seven of them are in the text. One of them we just know, that, and it's the first one. Her name means grace. We don't see that in the text, but we know from being able to look at the names and their meanings that her name means grace, which I just love. That one of the very people that God called into the temple to be there by the power of the Holy Spirit to bless King Jesus on that day that he's being presented in the temple as according to the law, that one of the ones, her name is Grace. Why? Because this is Grace embodied for all of us. What else do we learn about her? She was a prophetess. Some of you are going, hey, Presbyterian pastor, tread lightly here. She's a prophetess. What is a prophetess? A prophet. Someone who receives visions and word from the Lord to be able to proclaim to his people what he's going to do. And, and this is interesting that, that there had been 400 years of silence between Malachi and now. Between Malachi and John the Baptist, there had, there had been no prophecy. There had been no word from the Lord to his people. And here we are, Jesus being presented in the temple and a prophetess shows up as if to say, now the Lord is speaking. Are you listening? The word of the Lord is here. She was the daughter of Phanuel, which no time to go into other than to say this means that she was of the lineage going all the way back to the land that Jacob blessed after he wrestled with the Lord and named it Phanuel. She's of the tribe of Asher, which is to say that the tribe of Asher by the time of the birth of Jesus was a forgotten tribe of Israel, but not fully forgotten. Why? Because God doesn't forget his people. So one of the very ones that he brings into the temple is one of the forgotten tribes, if you will, because that's who God is. She was old, right? We, there's debate on how to, to translate, is she 84 years a, a widow or is she 84 years old? Either way, she's old. She's elderly and she's a widow, meaning she's on the margins of society. Widows were not treated well then which again shows the heart of God. Who's he gonna bring into the temple to be a part of blessing the son of God? It's gonna be a woman who's saying, this is the word of the Lord, who is a marginalized person. Why? Because that's who God's heart is for. At a, at a certain level, we're all marginalized, poor and needy. But we can't read the pages of scripture and, and not see that God's heart has always been so very passionate from beginning to end for those who are marginalized in the world. Those six things that I just mentioned, though, are all things that she can't control. Don't have to do with her character. It's just part of her story. But these last two that I'm going to mention, they're right here in the text, and they mark her character. Look what it says about her. It says, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Now, this is hyperbole. This is not, uh, it's not humanly possible to fast without ceasing. You have to eat at some point. She, it's humanly impossible to pray without ceasing. At some point, you have other thoughts that come in. But what this means is that this marked her life. When Luke and others observed her and knew her reputation, it was like they were saying, look, she's always there. She's, just, she's always there. Every time I go, I see her. She's at the temple. She's, she's worshiping. She's fasting. She's praying. This marks her life. This is who she is. 
fully devoted. But then it says that she spoke of Jesus. There at the end of the text, it says that, and she went after having seen Jesus, she spoke, to, uh, spoke of him to all who were awaiting the redemption of, of Jerusalem. In other words, we can look at Anna and we can say, okay, she was, she was one who prayed, she was one who fasted, she was one who worshiped, and she was one who told. Told anyone who would listen about Jesus. We return to our question, our key question for today and really all of life. Who will you be as you wait in this life? Will you be like Simeon, righteous, devout, waiting with great hope for the return of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit? Will you be like Anna, one who seeks continually the presence of the Lord, worships him, prays to him, fasts to experience him more deeply, speaks of Jesus to all who are listening. Look, it's okay. Sometimes we get a little nervous to say, can I pray to make me like someone who's not Jesus? It's, and it's okay to say, God, make me more like Simeon. I would say, I've been praying since studying this week, God, raise up more Simeons and Annas in the church. We need more Simeons and Annas, those who will be just like them. Oh, God, make me like them. It's okay to pray that. We know they're broken just like we, they were broken just like we are and that they were sinful just like we are. But it's okay to say, God, make me more like them. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. So it's okay. We can pray that and we can long for that and we can say, God, make me like that as I wait in this life. But I do want to be careful to say this. This text is ultimately not about them. It's not. This text, like every other text in the Bible, like every other passage in the, in the Gospel of Luke and all the pages of Scripture are pointing to the central character, not Simeon, not Anna, but Jesus. And right here in the middle of this passage, we skipped over it so that we could come back to it. Simeon says something to Mary that is profound. Look at verses 33 through 35. After... Simeon had sung his ecstatic joy over Jesus. He said this, or it says this. It says his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, about Christ. And Simeon blessed them, Mary and Joseph. But then watch this. He turns to Mary, just to Mary. And watch what he tells her. He says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And then he has a little, little parenthetical even within that thought. And he's still staring into the eyes of Mary. And he says to Mary, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. He's talking about the cross. You're going to watch him die. Horrifically, gruesomely, you're going to watch him die. He's going to pierce your soul, Mary. But listen. Listen. It's on that very reality that will pierce your soul that all mankind will either rise or fall. And he finishes his thought by saying this, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. We will all stand bare, as it were, before God Almighty on that day. And this is what the Bible teaches. This is not my opinion. 
This is not me just going, hey, it might be like this. The Bible clearly teaches this, that on that day where the every desire and thought of the heart is revealed before God the judge, there will be one thing, one reality, one person in whom and on whom all of life eternal hinges. This is what Simeon is saying to Mary. He's saying, this little child that you're holding now, he came, yes, to heal and yes, to save, but he also came to be the great divider. Those who will rise will be the ones who through declaration and proclamation by faith in him say, he is Lord. And upon that declaration, as Romans 10 says, that every, that every tongue confess and every heart confess that he is Lord, you will be welcomed into the kingdom of God for all of eternity, both now and forevermore. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. But many will fall. What does that mean? Well, it's hard for us to think about, but it means that the many who fall means that it wasn't that they declared him to be Lord, but they rejected him to be Lord. And in that rejection, they are not welcomed both now and forevermore into the kingdom of God, but they are separated from God. This Jesus, This little baby that Mary was holding, she's marveling at because Simeon is telling her profound and difficult things. Upon him, all of life eternal hinges. Which changes our key question, doesn't it? Yes, it's important to ask the question, who will we be? Who will you be as you wait in this life? But the deeper, more important question is, who will you worship as you wait in this life? What will you worship as you wait in this life? If ultimately, if, if, if what we worship most is ultimately, key word, ultimately, that what I need most in this life as an expression of the greatest desires of my heart is I need my circumstances to change and I need things to be different now, then that will be reflected in how we wait. Listen, what we worship, who we worship, determines how we wait. But if ultimately the deepest desires of our heart formed by God himself through the regenerating power of the spirit through faith in Jesus, if he is the one upon whom ultimately our hopes are centered on the rock of Christ, then yes, we pray for changed circumstances. That's fine, and he will change some of those circumstances. But even if he doesn't, my hope is secure because I'm waiting on the one who will come and make things, all things new. Who I worship determines how I wait. Who you worship determines how you wait. Let me close with this. I mentioned a moment ago that Zechariah, he sang, it's called the Song of Simeon, in fact. Might be labeled that way in your Bible. And it reminds me of just this trip that I was just on, and and, uh, there were so many things that struck me about the believers in Egypt, the people who who followed Jesus in Egypt. It was, it was just tremendous to watch them. 
the thing that struck me the most about them is they were just so full of joy. They, they, were, they were so glad in Jesus. And, and you know this probably. I mean, it's, it's, there's risk in following Jesus in, in a country like Egypt. It's not as risky as others in the Middle East, but there's risk. In other words, they're not, the joy is not in the comfort of life as a follower of Christ there. The joy is, just, is, is in him. I, I remember boarding the plane and I was reflecting to go home and I was reflecting on my trip. And one of the thoughts that I had was there are no curmudgeons, Christian curmudgeons in Egypt. I didn't meet any. So full of joy. And where I saw this expressed most tangibly was in how they sang. Oh my goodness, man, they could sing. The way they sang. Like, it, that morning that I, that I preached at Castle Navarra Church, it, it was incredible. And they were, they were meeting in this old stone, beautiful building. And as they sang, I mean, it was like they were trying to sing so that the whole city of Cairo could hear him. And it was reverberating off the stone walls and it was piercing the ears. And in a city where, where Muslim prayers are happening five days, five times a day over the loudspeaker so the whole city could hear it. It was as, it was as if they were singing to say, we're going to sing louder than the loudspeakers. You're going to hear a different song. And it was like their hearts were even saying, not only are we going to sing so that the whole city hears, we're going to sing so that the gates of hell shake. It was incredible. And they just kept singing, and they kept singing, and they kept singing. I mean, it was like 40 minutes. I'm going, when do I preach? You would have hated it, by the way. I mean, Americans don't sing that long. They just kept going, and I didn't know a word they were saying. The, the screens are in Arabic. I can't understand it, but my heart, the Holy Spirit within me was leaping. I, I was loving everything. Even though I didn't know, I could tell. I was like, man, these people are full of the joy of the Lord. It was beautiful. Why? Why would they sing like that? Because when good news of great joy falls upon the ear and changes the heart, that's what we do. We worship. We sing. I know we haven't walked through Luke chapter 1 in this series, but if you go back and read through Luke 1 and Luke 2, there is so much singing. Each time the good news of great joy falls upon a new ear, they sing. Elizabeth sings, Mary sings, Zechariah sings, the multitude of the heavenly hosts sing, the shepherds sing, Simeon now sings. Why? Because they've met the Lord of glory. They've seen with their eyes salvation, and they've said he's a light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. And if you want me to hold this in, I can't. He's that glorious. And I will sing as I wait until he comes again. God, give us the ability to sing with all of our hearts of King Jesus. Make us like Simeon, make us like Anna, righteous, devout full of the spirit, prayer-filled worshipers, fasting, telling all who will hear of the greatness of the Lord.
Would you do it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And it's most appropriate to say, let's stand and let's sing. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.